morning. Um, we are going to continue on our Dress the Mess series over the book of uh, And now I'm going to give a very brief recap. There's a lot to cover today, but I love this book because Paul, when Paul teaches, he teaches not, re- not just relatable, but he's so direct. And I like people just being direct. And he, you can't ever accuse him of being cloudy about what he wants to present. So um, the Corinthians were a very carnal group of believers, and it, they really frustrated Paul, and you see it in a lot of his writings. Uh, and they were like the perfect example of what happens when Christians compromise their faith. And by compromise, I mean back off of what they believe in order to fit in with the world, and that's kind of uh, what they had done in spades. Because the thing is, is we're not here as believers uh, to find ways to embrace the ideas uh, and, and the philosophies of the world. We're, we're here to try to convince the world they need to embrace the love of God. That's why we're here, you know. So today we're going to discuss kind of the fallout from spiritual immaturity and carnality. Uh, so here's the thing. Paul was really frustrated because he had to tell this group of people who should be flourishing. They're in a major town. That, I mean, there was a lot of people, great opportunities. They should be flourishing in their faith. But they were so spiritually mature, he had the task of coming in and saying, you guys, you guys really need to grow up. That's what he had to tell them. And so today, the name of the title, or the title of the message today is Time to Grow Up. And I don't know if you've ever dealt with that, but have you ever worked with someone that's just so immature they get on your nerves? Nate would probably be back there going, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, this is it's frustrating. You know, it's, it's really frustrating. And what he's dealing with, you can see the frustration here. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. It says, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men. But as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you are not yet able to receive it. Uh, indeed, even now you are not able. We'll stop there. So in verses 1 and 2, you can already see how frustrating he is. I mean, you can, you can hear it in the way he writes. He is frustrated with these Corinthian believers. And he comes right out of the gate saying, you know, I can't talk to you like I would talk to spiritual men. I have to talk to you like men of flesh. Right now, the, the phrase spiritual men is from the Greek word pneumontikos. You don't have to remember that. But it means a life that's patterned after or being controlled by the spirit. Okay, that's, what, that's what spiritual men means in the Greek. In English, it would probably be more like an obvious spirit-filled life. Uh, spirit-filled life. When you see someone that's just obvious that they are following the spirit, that's what it would be talking about. Now, the phrase men of flesh comes from the Greek word sarkina. And this is pretty interesting because... It means uh, typical of human nature with special focus on more base physical desires. Okay, that's pretty, I mean, that's pretty pointed there. I mean, in English it would better translate driven by carnality or driven by your sin nature is the, is the way that would, that would uh, play out. So basically he said, I can't talk to you like people who are being led by the Spirit because you don't act like people who are being led by the Spirit, right? You know, I would love to talk to you that way, but you're so carnal and you're so spiritually immature that I can't even talk to you that's what, that way. And that's why he called them basically spiritual infants. That's what he called them, spiritual infants, or people lacking spiritual maturity. And I love how he used this baby illustration, because babies start out on milk. I think we all know that, right? Nobody brings you your baby when you just give birth and then comes in with a happy meal. I mean, that's not, not the way it works, right? You have to start the baby on milk until they get strong and their, and their little systems are able to handle it. But by the time they're five years old, if they're still on milk only, something's wrong with that kid. 
I mean, you've got to get that checked out. Something's not right if they still can't handle solid food by the time they're five years old. Well, the Corinthian believers were not new believers. There's something you have to remember. When Paul wrote this, he wasn't writing this to a new church who just recently uh, came into being. This, they weren't new, right? But because of their spiritual laziness and their carnality, they were still spiritually immature like they just started. And that's why Paul's frustration is so obvious when he addressed them. I mean, right out of the gate, you can see it. See, Paul led a lot of these Corinthian believers to faith. When they first came to faith, Paul was the one who led them to faith. It was around AD 51, and he spent like 14 months with the people in Corinth. And he was teaching them and mentoring them and, and showing them how to study and talking to them about living the Christian life and the Word of God. And, and he was very patient with them and he was willing to put the time in to see them succeed. I mean, he was really a pastor to them. So, you know, he treated them at that time like spiritual infants because they were new believers. It made sense to treat them like that when he first led them to Christ. Right? That makes sense. And when I say treat them like spiritual infants, I'm not talking about being condescending. He just would teach them the more uh, simple, you know, processes in Scripture, and he started them off small. He didn't jump right into revelations and, you know, prophecy with them. He was teaching them, you know, how to understand the Word of God, just, just you know, mentoring them, teaching them basic biblical concepts, because they weren't able to handle anything more at that time, and, that, and Paul was totally fine with that, because they were new believers. That made sense. But Paul wrote this letter four or five years after he had led them to Christ. So these aren't new believers. They had been saved around five years. And most of these Corinthians still didn't show much, if any, spiritual growth at all. And that's why he was so frustrated. I mean, by this time, Paul should have been able to talk to them like, like mature spiritual people. They should have grown to a point where they were more assets in the church than they were students. You know what I mean? They should have grown some, but they just weren't growing. And it was really frustrating them. And he knew it was because of their spiritual laziness and that compromising attitude they had that was killing their, the growth of their faith. So he had to treat them like babies. So basically, he comes out of the gate and says, you bunch of babies? And I'm here, it's been five years. And here I am, I should be able to talk to you like, like mature Christian people. Instead, i got to change your stinking diapers. That's the Moses version, right? You know, he's saying, you babies? Gosh, I, I shouldn't have to. And I'll be honest with you, every pastor, if they're honest, has felt this way at one time or another with someone or, you know, Maybe even someone on the staff. No, I'm just kidding. No, but uh, sometimes, you know, we feel like this when there's people that you see have so much potential and they just, you know, they just don't want to grow or, or they don't have a passion to grow or they're compromising. So I understand this frustration. But then he goes on to talk about the evidence of their carnality or their worldliness. So look at First Corinthians 3, starting verse 3. He says, For you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like mere men? Fleshly means carnal. Fleshly would translate to carnal or worldly. So that's what he was saying when he said they're still fleshly. But I love how he lists these behaviors. Because he sees these as behaviors that accompany spiritual immaturity. And he comes right out of the gate with a big one. Because the first spiritually immature behavior Paul talks about is jealousy. Now I don't know if you guys have ever had to deal with someone jealous in a relationship. I'm not going to make you raise your hand. But, I mean, it's it's okay, you know, to not want, you know, someone hitting on your wife or something. I get that, right? But um, if you've ever been with that possessive, jealous person, you can see there's so much bitterness in it, right? But it's a sign of spiritual immaturity when there's jealousy among believers because jealousy is an emotion driven by a spirit of discontentment. It's driven uh, by envy. It's driven by pride. It's just those things are what drive jealousy. 
And jealousy comes from the Greek word zelos, and it means to envy, covet, or desire the possessions of others. Desire the possessions of others. And all of those things, all those, you know, that envy and that covetousness and that desire for what other people have are in stark contrast to what the Bible tells us believers should be doing and thinking. It's completely different. See, believers, believers are supposed to be content and thankful for what they have. When you're so worried about what you don't have, you know what it tells God and the people watching you? That you don't like what you do have. You're not thankful for what you do have. I don't know if you've ever had a kid um, and you got them something they didn't appreciate it. You know how frustrating that is? Are you really in a hurry to buy them something else? You buy them a new bike and they go, oh, it's blue. You know what I mean? It's like, as your backside is going to be if you don't ride that. You know what I mean? But <laughs> you know, it's just, when, when they don't appreciate it, it makes it hard for you to want to get them something else. So this is how they were acting. They were, they were jealous of each other, and this is not a Christian behavior. If you look at this in 1 Timothy, now starting in verse 6, it said, but, godly, but godliness is uh, actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by what? Contentment. It's really important. For we have brought nothing into this world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. Side note. We can't take anything out of this world, but the way we treat possessions and the desire we have for, for possessions in this world, you would think that we could take it with us, wouldn't you? Because it's the most important thing to us. I, I'll never forget this old preacher. One time I was at a funeral, and he said, Listen, uh, this man was ready to go. He didn't put his possessions over his spirituality. And he says, Listen, I don't know about you guys, but I've never seen a hearse calling a U-Haul. You can't take it with you. And I stopped for a second, and I thought, that's clever. Then I thought, you know, that's a really good analogy. You can't take it with you, but we live like you can't. Verse 8, it says, For if we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich and fall into te- uh, want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare, and uh, many foolish and harmful desires will plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, uh, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the fate and pierced themselves with many griefs. That completely describes the Corinthians. Now I want you to notice something here, so we can get this one. Everybody misquotes this verse. Everybody says the love of money. Right, is the root of all evil. That's not it. It doesn't say that. I mean, the people say the money is the root of all evil. They don't say the love of money. They say money is the root of all evil. It says the love of money, meaning that you that's your focus in life. That's what your passion in life is, is money. It's not talking about, you know, money being evil. Because if it is, I need to be more evil. I don't have much of it. It's not what that says. Now, the second, uh, the second immature behavior he talks about is strife from the Greek word eris, and it means to quarrel or to argue. I don't know about you guys, there's been a lot of this going on for the last few years, hasn't it? So this is a, this is a, a sign of spiritual immaturity when you have believers uh, who are arguing. And generally because arguments usually start for the same reason that jealousy does, pride or jealousy, discontentment. And the enemy loves nothing more than when believers are arguing with each other. He loves nothing more than to see when believers are bitter and angry. We were just talking about this a little bit ago. I never understood why you see people who are born again, who have the promise of eternal life, who are walking around angry all the time. You ever met those angry Christians? Anybody? Raise your hand. No, I'm just kidding. No, <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, but there's... I never understood that, right? But the enemy loves it when he sees people who are bickering and arguing because as long as 
they're bickering, bickering and arguing with, it, with each other and trying to prove who's right and who's wrong, they're not paying much attention to serving God or His Word or living their faith. And so the enemy absolutely loves it. Now, James reminded us uh, of this when he was talking to his readers in his letter. If you look at James 4, starting in verse 1, it says, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Listen to this. Is not the source of uh, the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your own pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is what? Hostility toward God. That's really important. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself what? An enemy of God. That's going to be really important. See, this had to be frustrating for Paul because he had taught them. He mentored them. He knew they got a good start. He knew that they knew better than to live this way and it made him very, very frustrating. It's like, have you ever, I mean, if you've had kids, again, I'm coming back to this, if you've never had them, honestly, they are a blessing. Sometimes. They're awesome. But I'm just going to go to think of that. But uh, if you've ever had kids, it drives you crazy when you teach them something and you know they know better and they do it anyway. And that drives you nuts. I never did that though. But there, a lot of my friends did. No, but seriously, I mean, it's so frustrating. Like, you'll tell the kid over and over and over and over and over, listen, make sure you pick that stuff up. You're going to trip over it with a light. Hey, your room's a mess. Pick it up. You're going to trip over stuff. Then you hear boom, 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 and crying comes from the upstairs room, and it's hard to feel sorry for him, isn't it? You're like, I warned you about this. You know, it's the same thing. It had to be frustrating to him. He knew good and well that he had taught them better than this, and they just ignored him uh, and ignored that. See, here's the thing. Believers should be able to get along. We should be able to get along because we all have one very important thing in common. We are filled with the Holy Spirit who... who teaches us and draws us closer to God. We have been purchased by the blood of Christ. That's something we have in common. We have a bond that's stronger than a family bond, a physical family bond. We are eternally bound by the blood of Jesus Christ. And I don't understand why we can't agree to talk about the things that are encouraging to each other and uplift each other, but we don't. We always want to argue. And it's over the silliest things. Listen, denomination really shouldn't matter. Do we really have to fight over that? To be honest with you, there's no mention of it in Scripture, first of all. <laughs> i got to say, you know what I'm going to say, don't you? Um, I had a guy tell me one time, he said, yes, there is a denomination in the Bible. And I'm like, pray tell. And he says, Baptist is in the Bible. And I'm like, well, i got to hear that. He says, yeah, the Bible said that John was preparing the way, and it was John the Baptist. And I, like, laughed. I thought he was joking. Nope. He wasn't joking. I go, his name literally means John the Baptist. One who smoked You know what I mean? But there's no mention of it. We shouldn't be bickering over denomination. And the fact that we do tells us that denomination probably shouldn't be a thing at all. And we shouldn't be bickering over someone's position or, or you know, their social status or, or their possessions shouldn't make us bicker with each other. Uh, and I see that all the time. You know what I mean? It's like... I see it both ways. I've seen people who someone has done well as a believer, they're successful and they're wealthy, and they talk bad about them. Well, I guess if you put the world first, then you can have it. I'm like, no, maybe he just works harder than you. 
Maybe she spent more time. There's nothing wrong with having money. It's talking about the love of it. But I've seen people fight and bicker over that, and it's just, it's just ridiculous. I don't understand why Christian people do that. The most valuable commodity you can have is the Holy Spirit, and we have that in common, and I think that's what we should focus on. But anyway, next, Paul asked a question that had to you know, kind of sting when the, when the Christian believers heard this. He said, are you not walking like mere men? Now, I've heard people read this, and they go, what, I mean, what are they supposed to walk like? They are men. That's not what it means. Because people d- didn't understand why Paul was saying you're walking like men when obviously they're human. But what he was trying to say is, I'll just give you the Greek word. The Greek word for this is anthropos. It's where we get the word anthropology from. It's where we get our word anthropology from. And uh, it's the mere men translates to that, and it literally means the natural, carnal nature of humanity. So basically he was saying unbelievers. He's saying are you walking like unbelievers? That's basically what he was saying. He was saying they were acting like the unbelieving world around them. That's what they looked like. If someone didn't know that they were a believer from previous experience, seeing their actions and words would not have displayed that to them. They wouldn't have known it. And as we read in James 4, I mean, it's a problem when believers, their faith doesn't come through in their actions and their words, in their content spirit. It's, it's a problem because it alienates believers from God. Right, which is another message. I'm not going down that road too far. Now, have you ever found yourself, I know this happens to everybody, and I know pastors a lot of times, we do a terrible job of making it sound like we struggle, but we do, a lot. But have you ever found yourself drifting closer to the world and farther away from God? And sometimes it happens on accident. Sometimes you're involved in something else that's a good cause, but it takes you and it starts to pull you away from God. Or some things that are going on at work or at school and you just start drifting away from God. And the farther away from God you get, the more things change the farther away from Him you get. When you start drifting away from God, your behavior changes, but more than just your behavior. Your temperament changes. You notice that? When I'm drifting away from God, I don't know how you guys are not going to claim to know, but when I'm drifting away from God or being sidetracked, I'm grumpy. Anybody else grumpy? In that way? I mean, not generally, but... Yeah, I, I get grumpy. Our temperament changes. Because you're not going to be content if you're a believer and you're having, you know, just strength. Our contentment changes, that's for sure. And our relationship with God changes, meaning our prayer power is gone. And I don't know if you've ever been to that position in your life, but that is a, one of the saddest positions in the world. When you're praying, I've literally got up from my prayer at times and said, I feel like the are I don't feel like anybody's on the other one. I feel like I'm talking to myself. I've been there. And when I'm there, it's because God's saying, hey, you're giving me your list of prayers, and you know what's between you. You know what's keeping us apart. You just don't want to give it up. Let's talk about that. That's the only thing I want to talk about right now. Then you can start praying once we deal with what's going on between you and I. But you start noticing that starts to go away. You start losing that prayer power. You start feeling, I don't know, a lack of assurance, I guess would be one way to say it. You just start feeling alone, even in a room full of people. Right? It's because you're becoming a weak God. You're losing your joy. Now, in verses 4 through 9, Paul explains how the spiritually immature often misplace their allegiances. I, I love this section. 1 Corinthians 3 4. It says, For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? Or are you not acting like mere men? See, I love this. I love this section. 
See, there's factions and cliques in everywhere. I mean, in any organization, anywhere you go, it's an inescapable evil of this world. There's always going to be factions. There's always going to be cliques. They exist within the family unit, within the church. They, they exist within, uh, at work, in your peer group, the government. It's everywhere. Cliques are everywhere. There's always going to be people separating themselves. And here's what they're defined as. I, this is just for my morbid curiosity. I never actually heard cliques defined, so I'm going to define it. It's a small group of people with shared interests or other features in common who spend time together and do not readily allow others to join them. Sounds about right, doesn't it? That exists. There's nothing you can do about that. But they are one of the defining characteristics of the spiritually immature. Because as Christians, we're supposed to be welcoming. When you're not welcoming, you're not acting like Christians. They just foster you know, divisiveness, and they try to divide, and uh, they, they push a lack of unity when there's split. Right? But what Paul's talking about is a little something different, and actually I think it's much worse what he's talking about. Okay, he's talking about uh, people who are choosing to identify with leaders more than identify with Christ. That's what he's talking about. And I know this sounds crazy, but it, it still exists, and I'll explain that here in a minute. Some of them said they you know, identified or they were in Paul's team. And some said they were in Apollo's team, and so on. And the reason that was making Paul mad was they were arguing over it. They were arguing over whose camp they were in. And it was frustrating. And it made him, I mean, furious, actually. And it's so funny because they, they proved the whole reason clicks shouldn't exist. They, they make divisiveness priority. They make people divide. And, you know, when you start getting that way, and I, there's still people like that today, um, to be honest with you, it's kind of an, uh, a form of idolatry when you're more worried about which group you're in and what leader you follow. I've seen this so many, so many, so many times. People wanting to please a leader. All they talk about is the leader. They forget that the leader is serving God, in, in, or should be, in the church. Right? It drives me insane. I don't like it when people say, I go to Chris's church. Listen, it is my church, and I am proud of it. But it's not just my church. This is Grace Christian Church. It's yours as much as it is mine. You're just as important to this body as I am. And this is the kind of thing that was going on. They were identifying themselves with men. You know, fighting over, oh, I, you know, I'm with Apollos. Well, this is how I think of the Calvinist-Armenian argument. You guys know what I'm talking about? It drives me crazy. Now, I'm not going to debate what, what's right and what's wrong in those arguments, but here's what drives me nuts is people say, are you a Christian? Yeah, I'm a Calvinist. And then someone uh, may say, I'm an Armenian. An Armenian. They say, what are you? And I always say, Christian. And someone actually told me that's impossible. Really, it isn't. You believe in becoming a Christian. That's how that works. They're like, no, you have to either be a Calvinist or an Armenian. And I tell them, listen, believe what you want, but I'm not going to be identified with someone who didn't die on the cross for me. And you're going to label me, label me Christian, because I want to identify with the one who hung on the cross for me. That's why this is making Paul so mad. They wanted to be identified as being in a certain camp or another camp, and, and it just becomes dangerous. And what happens is they start following the leader more than they start following God. Now, it's, it's, it's okay to have a, a one spiritual leader you might have more in common with and grow closer to. There's nothing wrong with that. that that's natural. But problems creep in when the leaders become a surrogate God. And that's exactly what happens sometimes. And, it, and it, it's not healthy when you see that happen. And so what happens is, here's how you can tell that's starting to happen. When people start looking to the leader more than God, probably the only time they hear anything about Scripture or see Scripture is Sunday when their preacher talks to them about it. That's the only time they get anything to do with the Bible. So he becomes like the deliverer of the message of all to them, like, like a God to them almost. I call these people pastor quoters. 
And the reason is, they can't, you know, they can't tell you where something's found in Scripture. They can't defend the faith. But they can tell you what their pastor said about it. And that drives me insane. Now, if their pastor's saying something from the Bible, it's okay to quote them. But it just drives me nuts when someone will say, well, I don't think that's right. And I say, why? Well, my pastor says, I don't care. I said, I don't care what your pastor says. What's the Bible say about it? Well, my pastor said, I'm sorry, was your pastor one of the writers of the scripture? No? Then what do you think about it? Not what does your pastor think about it? This is what was happening, and it was just causing divisiveness. It was tough. Okay, so next, Paul explains how uh, that mentality is not only spiritually immature, but also excludes God's sovereign nature. If you look at this, it says, 1 Corinthians 3, 5, it says, What then is Apollos, and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believe. As listen to this, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. Now, to be honest with you, most church leaders and pastors would do good to read this and put this in memory. They, they would do really good to do that, okay? Because too often believers get, uh, leaders of believers get full of themselves, spiritual leaders. And after a while, they forget who's actually running things. They believe their own hype. Trust me, trust me, too often church leaders just forget that they're servants. They're servants under the leader. It's almost like they get drunk with authority and, and they expect everyone to submit to it, but they themselves won't submit to anybody, not even God. And I've seen power struggles and politics and ministerial arrogance destroy leaders and split churches. I've seen it time and time again. But you didn't see that with Paul. Paul, they need to get a reality check when they get that mindset because Paul was humble. And he was reminding them, listen, why are you worried about being from my kingdom? Why are you worried about being from Apollos' camp? We serve the real leader, God. We serve Him. All the authority we have is on loan from Him. Listen to this, 1 Peter 5, starting verse 1. It says, Therefore I exhort the elders among you, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, not, uh, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge. Listen to that, allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when, what? The chief shepherd. The word pastor uh, is actually from a Latin word, pastura, and it's, uh, it means shepherd. Okay, so we're called pastor, but he's the real pastor. That's the chief pastor, the chief shepherd. All right? And it says, when he appears to you, will receive the unfading crown of glory. I love how he put that. Church leaders need to remember, you're just, you're, you're exercising authority that God has loaned you until he returns to take us back. You have nothing to be arrogant over. And Paul was worried that that was creeping its way into this. Now in verse 5, Paul displayed his humility by basically saying, and I'm paraphrasing, he said, you, you do understand that Apollos and I are just playing a role in God's plan, right? I mean, you get that. Because all we are is just servants. That's all we are. We don't deserve you to, you know, to form groups under our name. You know, Paul knew that Apollos and, and himself and every other minister or leader were just cogs in a big machine. And we have a function. But that function is no more important than any other cog that makes that machine run. They understood that. They understood that. All who serve God have an important job to do for the kingdom. But here's where we've got to get our minds dialed in. We all have an important job for the kingdom, but if you refuse to do it, God's not going to miss a beat because of it. Listen, if I were to die today, God will move on with grace for people. It will move on. It will still go on. God will still bless it. 
right? Because it isn't about me. I'm playing a role. And when I'm gone, God will put somebody else in that role. That's just the way it has to work. That's the way it's always been. And I think a lot of times we think more of ourselves than we should. There was a, a guy one time that worked in the factory, I'll never forget this, and he was trying to get his boss to give him a raise. He said, I can't give you a raise. Your time is terrible. And he said, if you don't give me a raise, I'm going to be gone. He said, you know what that's going to do to this place if I'm gone? And the supervisor holds his cup of coffee down and says, watch this. And he sticks his finger in his coffee. He says, now watch when I pull it out. The guy's like, and? He goes, you see a hole? He said, no. He said, there won't be one in either, either. You know why? Because someone else will fill in and do the job. Right? We need to remember that, that it's not all about us. We get the opportunity to serve. We get the opportunity to serve. And it is a blessing. Because when we serve others, we get to see the blessing of them growing in Christ and receive the blessing for being faithful. It's just amazing how God has it set up. Now, in verses 6 through 9, he uses this agricultural option. That's a little stop here, or illustration. 1 Corinthians 3, 6 through 9. He says, I planted Apollos water, but God was causing the growth. So that, so then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes growth. Now, he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. So, how many of you are gardeners? Raise your hand if you like to grow stuff. Raise your hand if you just like to eat the stuff that comes out of there. That's me. My wife always says, we're going to have a garden this year. And I'm like, define wheat. If we mean you plant it, you weed it, you pick it, and I eat it, that's a weed. If we mean that I'm going to be in there digging, then let's go get it from the produce section produce. That's just me. Okay? Now, that being said, gardening for most people, if, there's a process to it, I've heard. I try to stay away from it. Okay, story time. When I was a kid, my dad had, we had like a three-quarter acre yard, and like half of it was garden. Oh, but that wasn't enough. Nate's grandpa, and I'm never going to forgive him for this, he says, hey, I got three or four acres we'll turn into a garden. Let's split that. Oh, he did. So my summers were stringing beans. How many people had to do that growing up? Stringing beans and breaking beans. I hated beans. Picking corn. I love eating Dave's corn, mainly because he brings it here, I open it and eat it. You know? But if you walk and it's really hot outside and you're picking corn and there's bugs and you're doing it for acres, yeah, not a fan. Not a fan. That's why I hate gardening. Just put that down in your book, just so you know, because I had to do it when I was little. Anyway, let me get off track there. But anyway, uh, so the process works that somebody has to plant the seed, doesn't matter who. Somebody has to water it, doesn't matter who. Somebody has to weed the garden, doesn't really matter who. See, all those are important processes, but anyone can do those. But when people are faithful to do those things, God will give the increase. Just like in the garden. Once you've planted and weeded and watered, it's God who brings the sun. It's God who makes it grow. You can't get credit for it growing, right? This is the same thing he's saying. He's saying, listen, someone may be the person that sows the seed, meaning you might be that person who's good at talking to people for the first time about Jesus. Now, a lot of people are intimidated by that. But sometimes if you look, a door will open for you to talk to those people. Some people are really good at that. Some people, not so much. Some people are the ones that, after they've been witnessed to and they're struggling with questions, some people are the ones who say, yeah, I'll be happy to help you along with the struggle. I know you're, you know, you're kind of on search for God right now. There's some people who play that role. There's 
you know, some people who say, listen, I'll, I'll pray with you. I'll spend time with you. I'll mentor you. I'll try to help you understand this. That's a role. Some people are the ones that after they're saved, takes them under their wing and, and, and teaches them to be a disciple. There's different roles for everybody. But at the end of the day, it's God who convicts them and makes them want the Holy Spirit. It's God who gives them eternal life. It's God who will grow them into spiritually mature believers. We are just cogs in the machine. And that's what he was trying to explain to them. Listen, we're just cogs in the machine. You can't put us above anybody else. But they had become so spiritually immature, it was easier for them to cling to someone than cling to the Word of God because they had drifted that far away from it. And it was so frustrating to Paul. So to sum it all up, I mean, we should all do a self-check, I think, uh, and see if we're mature in our faith or if we're as mature as we should be. And if we're not, first of all, be honest, but if we're not, we need to stop making excuses and blaming people and just grow up. Because that's the same thing Paul was saying. Listen, grow up. When people say, well, I don't experience God, have you ever met the people who blame God for everything? Everything in their life. I had a, a, a guy talking to me one time, and he was talking about how evil God was to him and how God wouldn't give him this, and he's dropping all kinds of F-bombs and everything as he's explaining how bad God is. And he said, you know what really gets me? I'm always faithful. <laughs> and I'm like, but I'm bummed. I had to walk out on that one. Yeah, listen, if you're not where you need to be with God, it's not God's fault to it. I promise you. Grow up. That's what Paul was trying to tell him. Let's go ahead and close this. If you would, please bow your head. This is your first time. We always like to give a brief invitation and what that means is if you're not sure where you stand with Christ, then no one can tell by looking. It's not our job to be a judge. But we do want to pray for you. And I don't chase you down. I don't email you. If you make eye contact and you put your head right back down, I'll pray for you. Bless us, If you're watching online, God knows your heart. We'll be praying for you. But believers, you know, as I was preparing this message, I kept thinking to myself, the world is is encouraging us to not grow as believers. The world is pushing us from Christ at every turn. If there's ever been a time we need to check ourselves and grow up and be willing to live what we profess, it's now. I'm going to pray for us also. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for all that you do. We thank you for your love and your mercy and your kindness. And we just can't understand how you can love someone like us. Not only you and I know the sin in my life, but I know that I'm not worthy to be called yours. But I'm so thankful that you love me despite me. You love me. Not because I deserve it, but because you have a desire to be close to you. And thank you that you made salvation easy, that all we had to do is believe that what Jesus did was enough to guarantee our eternal life, and we'll give it to you. Thank you for that. And if someone here who hasn't made that decision to watch and listen, whatever's holding them back, remove it, God. So that they might accept you as we see this world falling apart, they're going to need more than ever. We pray that they make that decision to contact us. God, if for those of us who are believers, help us to stop being spectators. Help us to stop compromising. Teach us to grow up and get our hands dirty and get involved and share your love and see your work that you've assigned for us, God, because we want to see the kingdom overflowing with people. We see the world pushing them away. Let us be the beacons that draw them up. We just thank you, God, for all that you do. We ask you to keep us safe. And if you don't return to take us home before we meet again, let us come together one more time and give you all the praise.